Our knees stiffen in the confined space of this B-17 bomber. The engines roar, the aircraft's vibrations resonate through our bones. Adrenaline makes us jumpy. We've been airborne for an hour, and we're finally approaching the target. Bombardier and gunners are poised at their posts awaiting instructions and the inevitable assault from anti-aircraft fire. Tension grips the crew. You can see it in our faces, focused on the tasks at hand while we keep our worst fears at bay. Doesn't help that we have a reputation. We are tough, we are resilient. We are also, according to legend, unlucky. We are the Bloody Hundredth. Don Wildman here, and welcome to another episode of American History Hit. On January 26th, a nine-part television series entitled Masters of the Air will premiere, streaming on Apple TV+. It follows the men of the infamous 100th Bombardment Group in World War II, the Bloody 100th, as they famously came to be known. They were part of the massive U.S. Army Air Force's combined bomber offensive that flew so many missions over Nazi Germany, right up to D-Day. Based in England, in a place called Thorpe Abbotts, the Bloody Hundredth was established in January 1942 and saw combat from June 43 to April 44. And today, we're lucky to talk with one of the series' creators and writers, John Orloff, who has worked on the previous World War series we all know and love, Band of Brothers and the Pacific. Hello, John Orloff. Welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. You know, I have spent many hours, John, immersed in your war dramas. My dad was in the Pacific and, and never talked to us about it. So your shows and, and a couple movies here and there have been my only window into experience, and I really appreciate it. That's a real common experience. I don't know if you've heard the stories about band when we shot the opening sequences with the real men. Almost always their kids wanted to watch it and witness the actual interview because they'd never heard the stories before. Yep, it's our generation. The Bloody Hundredth, where's this name come from? I know it has something to do with bad luck. How much so? Real, real bad luck. Just taking the brunt end of a lot of vicious sermons, incoming attacks on multiple missions. They tended to draw what was called the tail end Charlie position in a formation. And it was that position in a formation, in a larger formation, that was usually attacked first and right. hardest. Yeah. Let's talk about the origin story of all of this. Uh, how was a bomber group formed? I mean, I think Americans don't really have a, a real clear idea of how big this force was. Well, it started very small. What's really interesting is, it, actually, it's one of the stories that's visually, but never verbally mentioned, is how the air war really exponentially grew from the American perspective. We started the war with 200 B-17s. Within three years, we had built 12,000 of them. And an additional, I think, 16,000 B-24s. So, you know, it's part of George Marshall and, and the genius of taking this peace-loving nation that had no real army and turning it into a, this triumphant machine in, yeah. in a matter of months, really. I always wondered, was it intelligence that came back that there was this enormous industrial might that needed to be destroyed? Was that the only way they were going to do it? And is that the source of the effort? You mean for the bombing, for strategic bombing? Yeah. 
it, it was a whole philosophy that was thought up in the interwar years. And the philosophy was, we might not even have to send soldiers on the ground. We could maybe finish this war just from the air by doing exactly what you just said, completely destroying the capabilities for making war by bombing factories and fuel depots and train stations, et cetera. Obviously, that did not work. But that was the idea in the 1920s and early 30s. Because you had the rise of aviation and suddenly these amazing planes. Right. Let's talk about the Flying Fortress. How does it get that name? And how much of a fortress was it really? Well, it was actually. Interestingly, the Germans called it the Porcupine because it was the first plane that had uh, rotating turrets that were hydraulically operated both on the top and the bottom, which gave it a 180 protection just from those two gunning positions. And then it had another six or seven guns, depending upon the model. Some had 10 guns, some had 11 guns, much more heavily fortified than anything that was being built in Europe at the time. That's how it got its name, just because of the amount of guns. And it was given to it before it had ever been in combat. It was almost a hype name, but it was kind of accurate. But you couldn't have just one. If you only had one, you could get shot down. You were a sitting duck. And what they quickly learned was if you had a bunch of them in a specific formation, it was called a box formation because it was both vertical and horizontal, this formation, that you created an umbrella of hundreds of defensive gunfire rather than just 10. So if you have a normal in the early war, a group would go up with about 12 planes, maybe 16 planes. Well, that's 160 guns. So you just had 10 times more guns, you know, kind of confining you in that same space or protecting you in that same space. Yeah. It brings to mind another famous fighter group, the Tuskegee Airmen, who primarily, I know, flew out of the Mediterranean theater. But I know there is a story of one Tuskegee pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Jefferson, who ends up in a Stalag with one of these guys from the Bloody Hundredth, right? Yeah, exactly. And that was our in. When I found that out, Jefferson is an ama another amazing man. I mean, I I'm going to put him up there with Rosie too. Jefferson is just an amazing human being. And he was shot down and ends up in the same stalag as some of our characters. And that's our in to share with the audience the Tuskegee experience. And I, I was just so excited we could do that. You're right. They did not fly with the hundreds. We don't show them flying with the hundreds, but we do see them fly and, and we see them do their job as well as everybody did their job. And well, and then those guys, the Tuskegee guys, we, we focus on a few, Jefferson, Daniels, and Macon. And Macon and Jefferson became best friends after the war. They were very active in the civil rights scene. You know, they had this whole post-war experience. All our guys did. It was really interesting. They all had very different roads after the war. Very, very, very fascinating. The series, I know, is based on the same book, uh, Masters of the Air, by Donald Miller. How many of the characters of that book did you carry forth into this? I mean, not exactly speaking, but that was the idea, right? Well, only a few, because Don's wonderful, excellent book is not about the 100th Bomber Group. It's about the entire air war against Germany. 
So there's really only a few chapters in the book. And they focus, those chapters focus mostly on three of our main characters, Egan, Clevin, and Rosie. Crosby's mentioned. A couple other of our characters are mentioned, but not really highlighted at all. So that meant that I basically spent a year, my first year on the job in 2013, was to spend a year just doing research and writing this Bible, which is 250 pages with 500 footnotes from 40 different sources. You know, a lot of them are Don Miller's books, those sources, or footnotes, but there's 39 other sources that were used to fill it out. They were a colorful bunch of characters, though. That's part of their uh, legacy, right? Well, that's the magic of Spielberg and Hanks, really, like picking the right story to tell. What I understand is Stephen read the book just for fun because we all kind of love World War II reading. And once you read about Buck and Bucky, Egan and Clevin, and you know their whole arc, and I'm not going to give it the spoilers away, it's hard not to go, oh, that's special. That is a story that can be told. And then you add Robert Rosenthal, who's a replacement pilot, who comes in in about four months to theater after Egan and Clevin have arrived. So he's kind of one of the new guys at, at one point. He is one of the most amazing human beings to ever wear a uniform. And I would put him up there with Dick Winters as a real extraordinary American hero, not just an American hero, but yeah. an extraordinary man. Ends up going back and being in the Nuremberg trials, as I understand, right? Yeah, yeah. He's a lawyer. Yeah, he volunteers. You know, <laughs> he, the job's not done in his mind. Yeah. And he actually um, is on the prosecution of Herman Goering. He interviewed Goering. Wow. How ironic. He met his wife. Uh, just to, He meets his wife on the boat trip there because she's also a, a lawyer who's going to pro who's volunteered to prosecute Nazis. They meet on the boat, fall in love, and spend their honeymoon prosecuting Nazis. You know, <laughs> there I you mean, go. come on. <laughs> That's uh, one for the books, yeah. Yeah. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? or what made Alexander so great. Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel and is narrated by me, Don Wildman, and is direct audio from my TV show, Mysteries at the Museum. On Mysteries at the Museum, I travel across the U.S. to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that evolved into one of the most popular toys for kids. Objects carry a lot of power. 
They tell a story about a person, a place, or a time in history. And sometimes they just look like ordinary household objects. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. I think you'll like this podcast because it's telling every kind of American story through fascinating historical objects. So listen to Mysteries at the Museum wherever you get your podcasts. The Bloody Hundredth flew 8,630 missions. I mean, what? Yeah. From June 43 to April 44. That's probably sorties. What's the difference between a sortie and a mission? I'm sorry. A mission is, you know, one mission a day. A sortie would be, well, there's 14 planes, so it's 14 sorties. Oh, okay. You know? They were specifically addressing, as we mentioned, the industrial facilities, the naval yards, the airfields across an enormous region of Europe. This really uh, shocked me. France, Netherlands, Poland, but they flew as far as Romania and Ukraine. Is that all from the same base? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. They would have to, depending upon the mission, occasionally they would have to land like in Africa and refuel in Africa to get back. But yeah, that's what they did. It, what they did is amazing. And, and it's one of the things I'm so excited about for the show, because as, a, as an audience, we, we do understand the land war. You know, it's been shown so many times, so well, often, you know, I mean, not just Saving Private Ryan, Patton, or Band of Brothers, or the Pacific. We get it. We understand what it is to be in a foxhole or to go from building to building in a in a town like Carrington. We, the audience, have never seen the reality of what these airmen went through. As good a movie as Memphis Bell is, as good a movie as 12 O'Clock High is, they just didn't have the technology to show you what really happened up there. Exactly. Over time, uh, losses were heavy, to say the least. Uh, 177 aircraft shot down or crashed. 732 airmen. Jeez. But theirs was actually similar losses to other groups, I, I actually read. Their story really is representative of the campaign as a whole, isn't it? Absolutely. They all suffered terribly. The reason they got the bloody hundredth is there were some specific missions where they really suffered. So I'll tell you just a little story, if I may. Yeah. There's one mission over Berlin, and it's in the show, and we lose 15 planes. That's 150 men in one afternoon. And I was talking to Tom Hakes about it, and we were just sort of talking about what that meant to the base, right? And I was like, Tom, remember, that is all of Easy Company gone in one yeah. mission. And somehow the drama of it happening at tens of thousands of feet makes it even more terrifying, at least, right? With no medic. Yeah. Right? So you get wounded. Let's say you get wounded going in, right? You're over the channel. You're going in. You're in hour one. Flack hits you in your legs. You start bleeding. And you got five, six more hours in that airplane. And it's negative 40 below in that airplane, you know, and you got to tough it out. I suppose we can look forward to seeing a much more detailed version of these air battles in this show than ever before, I would imagine. Yeah. Thanks to the technology of, of filmmaking. But it really is something that I think needs to be cleared up is the speed at which these aircraft were moving, the sheer terror of it all. It's chaotic, I would imagine, right? Yes. 
One of my goals, well, it was my major goal when I took the job on, was to show exactly that, what this kind of aerial combat really felt like and looked like. And it is fast, and it is shockingly brutal. As you said, you know, the, the bombers are going at around 100, 150, depending upon what's happening at the moment. They can go faster, but not much faster. And the fighters that are closing in on them are going around 400. So we're talking 500 miles an hour. They're closing in at each other at 500 miles an hour. And it just is like, boom! And then <laughs> that you're either got shot or you did, you know? And the bombers just had to take it. Because remember how I said before, you had to stay in formation, remember? So, so a fighter, if you're a fighter plane, and you could do whatever you want. You can go over there, you can go over here, you can be chased over there. But if you're a bomber pilot, you can't deviate. You got to stay on course no matter what's coming at you, no matter what's blowing up next to you. You have to have balls of steel. And there's no going to the next foxhole. You know, there's no running out of this airplane. And then you turn around and come back through it. And you got to do this twice. That's right. You turn around and you go back. And here's where it gets really intense. You go home. You've lived through it. You get drunk, right? Because thank God, maybe you go out, meet a girl. You get lucky. You have a great night. You get a day off. And then you got to do it again. So they had this weird boomerang kind of effect of normal life, death, normal life, death as opposed to Easy Company, where they were six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks in theater, right? So they got into a routine of knowing everywhere they look, they, you know, is there a unit? This is totally different. It was a really difficult way to live. I'm curious if you had a chance to meet any of these guys uh, by phone or otherwise. Our actual main characters have all sadly passed, but there are a few of the 100th Bomber group men who I have gotten to meet. There's some who are still alive, a couple pilots, navigators, some crewmen. I started meeting them. The 100th Bomber Group has a foundation and they would have an event every year where, you know, the survivors would get together and their families would come. So I interviewed them and, you know, it wasn't quite the same. You know, it was pretty amazing when I could call up Dick Winters or Carwood Lipton or Malarkey and Hope Gardner, you know, and not having that was definitely harder. Well, it's one of those many stories of, of these kinds of wars that must be preserved and passed on. I mean, it's remarkable generationally because I have stories from my own father. I mean, it's not that long ago, and yet it's very quickly getting very long ago, you know, for younger generations. So these are the films that really keep this alive, and I'm very grateful, and I'm sure they are as well. It must be so satisfying to see this brought home for you, isn't it? It is really satisfying. It was touch and go a couple of times. Wasn't sure whether it would get made. You know, it's been 10 years. Thank goodness Apple came in and just embraced it wholeheartedly. And I'm really proud of it. I, I think we all are. I like to say you will see things that no human eyes have seen since 1945. And I'm, I'm not joking. We show the progression of the industrialization of the air war. So for example, in the first mission of the show, it's 1943, it's uh, June of 43. Maximum effort, 72 B-17s. By episode nine, when we are bombing Berlin on an almost daily basis, 
An average mission is 1,200 bombers, 500 fighters, 1,700 planes. It would take them hours to just go over Berlin because there were so many airplanes. You cannot conceive of what we were doing. And the ancillary idea of that is the industrial might that was happening back home to make these airplanes. Boeing was licensing the blueprints because they couldn't make enough of them quickly enough. So other factories were making, non-Boeing companies were making B-17s. The whole world was at war. And we don't quite get that anymore. We've gotten so used to these kind of confined conflicts in this neat little over there box. There was no over there box in World War II. You know, Africa, everywhere, China, India, Burma, Japan, just the whole world. And all of the civilians were at war too, because if they weren't in uniform, they were doing something. They were building these airplanes. They were suffering because they couldn't have gasoline. They couldn't have sugar. They couldn't have corn. They couldn't have all these things. Everybody was participating in this war. A truly extraordinary story that has so many chapters to it that go on and, and change American society beyond yeah. this. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I got to get you out of here. An amazing series. I have loved your work in the past. I can't wait to see this series coming up. It starts January 26th, as I understand, Apple TV+. Plus. John Orloff is an accomplished screenwriter who has worked on all of these things we've talked about. It's a real honor to meet you, sir. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening to American History Hit. You know, every week we release new episodes, two new episodes, dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of content from mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great. But you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share it with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.